All right, good morning. All right, so just a quick survey. Who likes the snow? Raise your hand. All right, who hates it? That's me. All right. The other thing I was going to mention real quick, this isn't a part of my sermon, but um, this was a really big week for me, really big week. I put off something for 20 years that I got done this week. I had my wisdom teeth out. I had two upper wisdom teeth. They were fully out, and they, uh, this is like the most manly thing I've ever done. I just went to the, the dentist. He gave me a couple shots, and he just ripped those things right out. I didn't even go to an oral surgeon, um, and that's a really big deal for me. So I, was, I went home, you know, and I've got these gaping holes in my mouth, and they're bleeding, and my wife is just kind of like, suck it up. It's not that big of a deal. And I was like, Sarah, I had surgery today, you know? And she's like, you didn't have surgery, so I looked it up. And, you know, surgery is anything that a, a physician does with an implementation, an implement, to, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to make you better. So that's what I had. I had surgery. And then it got me thinking. <laughs> I'm not even convinced giving birth is surgery. But anyway, so I'm going to start preaching. I'm just an idiot. So, like... If you're an idiot too, like this is a church for you. So, all right, we're going to turn and uh, we are in a series and uh, obviously, although mine was surgery and depending on how your surgery went, it may not, or how your birth went, it may not have been surgery. I acknowledge that that is hard, more hard than what I went through. All right, we're in the 10th week of a series entitled Boundaries in which we are looking at uh, how can we have better relationships? Boundaries are really all about relationships. A boundary is an invisible fence that defines what we are and what we are not responsible for. And when we get our responsibilities out of whack, we start to get our relationships out of whack. And sometimes you're on the receiving end of somebody with poor boundaries, and sometimes you might be the individual who has poor boundaries. Um, But all boundaryless relationships or poor boundaries are developed because of a lack of unconditional love. And so since I'm a preacher, you can kind of see where I'm going with this. God gives us, in his unconditional love, the best possible foundation for us to set good boundaries and have good relationships with those around us. And for the past six weeks, that's exactly what we've been looking at. We've been looking at different areas of relationship. We've looked at the family relationship, that is, your crazy uncles and all that stuff. We've been looking at uh, your friends. We've been looking at uh, your work. We looked at last week yourself. We've looked at um, your spouse and your parenting with your kids. And today we come to another relationship, and it's maybe one that you wouldn't commonly think of that we need boundaries or limits on. But this morning we come to our relationship with God, with God himself. And when we are talking about putting boundaries on a relationship with God, we are not looking at the idea that we need to limit our exposure to God. Obviously, the more exposure we have to God, the better, the more true exposure we have. When we are looking at putting boundaries on a relationship with God, what we are really looking at is putting boundaries on our mental thoughts that we have about God, that we are learning to develop kind of like the wisdom and the discipline to limit our definition and our vision of God. A healthy relationship with God always, always begins with us understanding who God is and what he does who God is, and what he does. And the vision that we have of God, and all of us have visions of God. Perhaps they're wrong visions, 
and as a result, we have a wrong relationship with him. Or perhaps it was a wrong vision of God that you were given and has caused you to step away from faith or from God completely. But the vision that we have of God affects who we are and what we do. I'm not going to preach on this this morning, but if you were to go home and you were to write this down and go home and read Romans 1, 18 through 32, you would see in that passage, you would see how the vision that those people had of God began to corrupt and affect every relationship that they had. But our vision of God transforms who we become. And in fact, we become like the God we worship, don't we? If you find God to be harsh, you will become harsh. If you find God to be loving, you would seek to become like the God you worship. If you abandon God himself altogether and you don't find that in the gap of losing God that you put nothing, you always put something in the vacuum that you get rid of. But we begin to worship false gods. And if you become worship the God of money, you'll become greedy, right? If you begin to worship the God of sex, you become a sex-crazed person, right? All of these things, no matter what it is, we become like the God we worship. And so it seems wise to me as we kind of uh, begin to finalize and finish this series. This is the last week in which we're looking at a specific relationship. Next week I'll be gone, but Chris is going to uh, be preaching. And he's going to be talking about how we summarize all of this and how we can develop healthy boundaries. But as we kind of wrap this series up and how we look at our relationships, it seems wise to me that we take time, and because I'm the preacher, I can kind of force you to reflect on what is your vision of God? And so the map for this morning is really easy and it's really simple. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at some false visions of God. They're really common visions and we got these from somewhere. And perhaps as I go over them, you'll recognize some of them in your own life. And hopefully this morning that can be a really freeing thing in your life because uh, I'm just going to tell you all of these gods that maybe you'll recognize and that have kind of enslaved you, they don't exist. And so we're going to go over false visions of God, and then we're going to do a really uh, brief and really like forest look, you know, not detailed, but general look of who is God, a true vision of God. And then lastly, I'm going to kind of talk to you about wrapping this all up and giving you how you can have healthy boundaries with God himself. But to start off this morning, a false vision of God. These are gods um, that we all have thought about in the past, and for some reason, maybe it was our churches, maybe it was our parents, maybe they wanted to use these visions of God to control your behavior. Parents never do that stuff, you know? Maybe it was a grandparent, or maybe it was just kind of default. Sometimes there's things that I'm like, false thinking that I have that goes on in my brain. I'm like, I don't know who taught me that. It just kind of seems natural for me to believe this lie or this vision. And so wherever these came from, these are prevalent, and these need to be rejected. These categories, I've read a lot of articles and books about this kind of thing, but these specific uh, definitions, these markers, I took them from a sermon I listened to recently from Andy Stanley called The Gods of the No Testament. I thought that was really clever. And he used these six ones, and maybe you have different titles, or maybe you have a few extra that you could add, and you could think about those this afternoon. But these gods are ones that we falsely believe and who always will lead us in a poor direction. And if you have turned away from faith because of belief in one of these gods, or if you believe in one and it is illuminating or uh, taking your faith in a wrong direction, which it always will, then you just need to 
to, to have a marker for this and say, like, I need to step away from that, and I need to change the way I see God. So let's get right into it. First false vision, and we'll just look at it like bodyguard God. Bodyguard God. This God is the God that tells us that good things never, or bad things never happen to good people. And for some reason, a lot of us think, like, if there is a good God, bad things should not happen to good people. And there is some truth to that. I think ultimately bad things will not happen to good people. But in this world as it currently is, where it is conflicting and coexisting with evil and with goodness, people all the time. And you know, I've just never come into contact with a Christian. And I, I don't know where everybody is. We all sit in the gray seats and we all wear clothes when we come here, you know? So we all look kind of similar, but I don't know your background. I don't know where you are with your faith. But when we come to church, and maybe you've stepped away from faith, and maybe it was because of this God that you had been taught that if you're good, good things will happen. But that doesn't always seem to play out. And if you are a Christian, I bet you you've never made this argument with one of your buddies, you know, maybe a family friend, coworker, a neighbor. You know, Joe Blow. This world is perfect. Look around you. Everything is great. Therefore, God must exist. Nobody ever makes that argument, do they? The world would not allow us to make that argument. But as we look a little deeper at Christianity itself, we understand a couple things. First, the Christian faith itself begins with a very bad thing happening to the very best person imaginable. Jesus, we are told, became human. So he was the God-man. He came to earth. And at the climax of his uh, end of his life, he died on the cross by people who he was innocent and very bad people put him on the cross for very wrong reasons. And it is because of that sacrifice where a very good person went through a very bad thing that we're even here this morning. Because Jesus didn't just stay dead, he rose from the dead. And not a single one of his disciples after his death believed in him any longer. But every single one afterwards did and went through incredible torture and suffering to take a message, a message after Jesus has died and rose from the dead, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And even after they gave that message, they suffered terribly. If we were to look at kind of the story of the the Bible, and I'm not going to talk about the whole thing, obviously, but think about some of the major stories that we would be taught. And perhaps you were taught in Sunday school. Joseph, a pretty good person. He was a little arrogant in the beginning. But he is thrown in a pit by his brothers. He is sent off to Egypt where he is enslaved. He rises into power in the Potiphar's house. And he is uh, the most powerful man in the house. And he is unjustly treated by Potiphar's wife when he refuses to sleep with her. He is sent into prison. He rises to prominence in prison and finally becomes the second person in all of the land and authority under the Pharaoh himself. But all of that time, it took years, and we just read it, and it's just a couple chapters, and we could resolve the whole thing in 10 minutes of reading, right? But he went through that entire thing during his life, probably going through, how could God allow these things to happen to me? Or we could think of David, who was anointed king of uh, Israel, probably around 16, 18. He's a a late teenager. Um, But you know, for 15 to 20 years after he's anointed, he's anointed king by Samuel the prophet, but he is not king. Saul is king. And you know what Saul does for the majority of that time? 
the time in between David was anointed king and David becomes king, Saul tries to kill him, right? Over and over again. Bad things do happen to good people. And I take great solace in the fact that one day the world will not be conflicting and coexisting with good and evil, and one day God will return in the person of Jesus and will renew all things. But until that day, good things or bad things happen to good people. And if you struggle with this issue, everybody in the room would understand why. But if you've stepped away from faith because of bodyguard God, then you just need to realize that he does not exist. Number two, a false vision of God, on-demand God. The God who responds to fair and selfless requests the way that we would. And if you're honest, and I'm sure we've all done this, and we've thought to ourselves, I prayed for something, and I prayed for something that was completely selfless. It didn't help me. I didn't pray for a Ferrari. I didn't pray for a hot girlfriend. I didn't pray for a bigger house. I was praying that my mom would get better. Or I was praying that my friend would, you know, not ruin his life on drugs. And whatever it is. And for some reason, maybe your prayer didn't get answered. And I'm, I'm not, uh, just because I'm a pastor does not mean I understand why. Because I do not. All I know is that we do not control God and he is not on our demand. And he doesn't always respond to the way I wish he would do things at the timing that I wish he would. But it makes him no less God because he doesn't. Did you ever see that movie, Bruce Almighty? Remember? And uh, it's, Bruce is this guy, he's Jim Carrey, which is kind of weird. And Morgan Freeman in the movie is God. And Bruce Almighty is unhappy that things did not go the way he thinks they should go. And so in this satirical movie, which isn't quite as blasphemous as you might think from the way I describe it, um, Bruce is given the power to do things just the way he would want it done. And the world goes into chaos. On-demand God may seem alluring, but he does not exist. One of my favorite um, books of the Old Testament in the Minor Prophets is a book called Habakkuk. And we don't often get this vision into the way God works in our own personal life. But in the book of Habakkuk, it's very short. You could read it this afternoon in probably 15 minutes or less. It's just three short chapters. But in the book of Habakkuk, it's a dialogue between uh, God and the prophet. And there's only two times in all the Bible that you get something quite this extended like this. There's the book of Habakkuk and the book of Job, this extended conversation or dialogue, which is kind of interesting. But in Habakkuk, here's the story arc of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a prophet, and he's a prophet of Judah. And he looks around at his nation, and he sees his nation, and he wonders, how could this nation be so bad? God, why aren't you doing something about your nation who you say you love? And God responds, I am doing something about it very soon. I'm going to send Babylon, and they're going to exile you and punish you for what you did wrong. And so if you've ever had a prayer request where you want, like, God, why aren't you showing up and acting? That's not the answer you want, right? And Habakkuk didn't want that answer either. And he says, God, how could you possibly do this? They are far worse than we are right now, and you haven't done anything about that. And God says, trust me. And Habakkuk does. Go home, and you can read it this afternoon, 15 minutes. It's a little more complex than I gave you, but that's the story arc. We don't always know what God is doing. But if we were Bruce Almighty, it would look a whole lot worse. And I think intuitively we kind of know that. If God doesn't do what you think he should do, 
I'm sure you have some good reasons why you think he should do things differently, but he does not work on our demand. That God does not exist. Third, boyfriend God. And this one's really easy to fall into too, and I need to explain what I mean by this. Boyfriend God is the vision that some of us have of God that believe if God is real, that we should be feeling the love and his presence in our life constantly. We are supposed to feel the presence and the intimacy of God. I wish I did, you know. I wish I always had this like spiritual high where I'm feeling God's presence, but that has not been true to my real life in general. I have times in my relationship with God where I feel his presence very deeply, and I have other times when I don't feel it as much. And in those times, there's times when I've walked with him irregardless, and I've experienced the blessing of doing so. And there are times, because I didn't feel his presence, that I've moved away from him, and I've experienced the distance of doing so. But there's nowhere in the Bible where God promises that we will feel the love every moment, that we will feel his presence. I have two illustrations I think bring this out really clearly, and they both involve 400 years. The first is, there was a time in Israel's history, we're told in the book of Exodus, where Israel was enslaved by Egypt. It all began good. Israel was experiencing a famine, and Joseph was actually the man. He was, in, it, he was in Egypt, and he had risen to prominence. And the people of Israel had taken the lead and followed uh, Joseph's family into Egypt, where there was food, and they had stayed there. And they had experienced prosperity, and they'd been treated well. But the Bible tells us there arose a time when the Pharaoh did not remember Joseph which began a period of 400 years of enslavement. And we're told that the people of Israel cried out to God. But apparently God didn't answer. For 400 years, they suffered there. There's another period. The, the Bible ends, uh, really the story of the Old Testament ends somewhere around Nehemiah and somewhere around Malachi. Those chronologically are the last books in the Old Testament uh, that are the events. Nehemiah is a narrative book. It's telling of like the last time when the people of Israel moved back to Jerusalem. Many of them returned from exile and they built a wall around Jerusalem. And Malachi is a prophetic book and it's one of the last ones that was written. But between the writing of Malachi and the birth of Jesus is another period of 400 years. It often gets referred to as the intertestamental period. But during this intertestamental period, the people of Israel were crying out and God was seemingly not present. But we know, if we're honest, that he was present that whole time. They just didn't feel his presence in the same way. John Piper, he has a quote that I've always thought of when I'm going through dry spells, and he said, I have known incredible time of dryness in the word of God. Just if we do not feel the presence of God does not mean his presence is not constantly with us. And when we choose distance because we feel distance, that gap or that distance will only create exponentially widen. Fourth, guilt God. And perhaps this one is the most prevalent of all of the false gods that we grew up with. And I don't know who taught us this. You know, sometimes maybe parents use guilt God to, you know, get us to quit smoking. I never did, but, you know, or whatever it is to try to get us to step into line. 
But guilt God is basically the God who uses the threat of fear and punishment to get us to step into line. This God might, like, he, he kind of looks a little bit more like Zeus with his lightning bolt. and He throws things down and gets us when we do wrong. But guilt God is so, so, so prevalent. I once heard a story about a teenager who had an abortion when she was a teenager. And 40 years later, she was still struggling with that and thinking that every time something went wrong in her life, it was a result of that abortion that she had. That's not true. I'm a preacher, which doesn't mean I'm always right, but on this one, I'm really sure I'm right. The Bible tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, we learned through the Bible that the whole reason God sent his son Jesus to die was to restore our relationship to God so that we might now no longer fear death and guilt. But yet, some of us have been living under a God of guilt our entire life. And if you stepped away from faith because of your fear of guilt, God, then it would be very freeing to know that he does not exist. Fifth, and these last two are kind of similar, and for some reason, these two are a little bit more recent. But the first one is anti-science God. For some reason, especially in certain quarters of Christianity, uh, some Christians believe that we have to choose between science and faith. That's just so silly, isn't it? We don't have to choose between science and faith. You know, I always get myself into trouble so, at certain points, but like this I don't know if you've read a lot about it, but it is not a science book. That's not what it is. It doesn't function that way. Whatever we learn about science just teaches us more about what God did and how he did it. This teaches us about our relationship with God. Everything it says is true, but it doesn't say everything about everything. It's a lot it doesn't talk about. How to build bridges, um, you know, how to <laughs> doctor well, you know, I'm really really proper with that language, aren't I? But you know, speaking of doctoring, have you ever sent your kid and you go to the doctor and you want to get an answer to like, you know, what's wrong with my kid? And you go to the doctor and he takes the blood work and at the end of the time you call the doctor, it's been a couple days, like, man, I hope you've got a natural explanation for what happened and a natural solution. And has the doctor ever said to you, you know, we've taken the blood work and I've got to tell you, I think God is trying to teach you something. <laughs> we don't do that, do we? And we're not less Christian because we don't. Whatever science teaches us that is true teaches us something about God and how he works. But for some reason, and I just like controversy, for some reason, like global warming and all this stuff just makes us all wig out and get frustrated. I don't know much about all that stuff. But whatever science truly teaches us, teaches us something about God. I didn't even take high school chemistry, so don't come to me for the science answers. The, third, the last vision of God that we have that is incorrect, and this one just gets silly sometimes, is gap God. This is the God that we believe that anything that we don't understand just has its explanation in God. The problem is the more that we understand, the less room there would be for God in this situation, Right? But God is not threatened by our continued understanding. If we were to understand everything in the world, we would simply have a better understanding of God. He would not cease to exist. 
Because God is not just the God of the gaps, that which we don't understand. You know, like, man, I looked there five times and my sunglasses weren't there. But the sixth thing, sixth time, there they were. It's a God thing. I don't understand it. It's not the way it works, right? God is not just filling in the gaps in our life. He is all. And he's in all. And if we were to understand everything about this world truly, we would understand God more fully. These are false visions of God. And if you have had any of these visions of God and have stepped away, then it may be freeing to you to know that those gods do not exist. If you have had these visions of God and maybe have not stepped away, but maybe they are enlightening the way you live in relationship with other people and the way that you interact within the church and in the world, then I want to challenge you to reconsider who God is. For these gods, if this is what you thought existed, these are not proofs against God. They are unmet expectations based on childhood explanations of who God is. They're just not true. So this morning, let's use the remainder of our time to ask ourselves, who is God? What is he like? And admittedly, I do not have all of the answers on this. In fact, I am convinced that even the Bible itself does not tell us everything there is to know about God, right? Even if I were to master the 66 books of the New and Old Testament, I would not know everything there is to know about God. And I haven't even come close to mastering the 66 books yet. And as a side note, spiritual growth is not about mastering the 66 books, but about living what you know that's in the 66 books. But nevertheless, what is God like? This is a forest picture, and I want to give you four things, and these are really awesome. First, and as, I want to preface it by saying that these are all things that are reported to us by Jesus or by the Apostle John, who spent time very closely with Jesus, and these are his descriptions. First, God is spirit. We are told in John 4, 24, where Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman, that Jesus tells her, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Nowhere in the Bible has anyone ever been this, quite this specific before about the nature of who God is. We know from this verse that God does not have a body, that he is, you know, incorporeal. We know from this that God is spirit. The word is neutral, gender neutral. So God is not male or female. And I know I'm going into dangerous territory. He's not male or female. He is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Second, and this one is going to help you understand kind of, we just looked at how God is spirit, but one of the other second, the second defining marker about who God is is that God is Father. And this may seem like it goes against God as Spirit, that he is gender neutral, but it doesn't. In fact, I'm convinced, and you can talk about this at the dinner table, and really, I don't care if you disagree with me. You may be right and I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this one. God is gender neutral. He is Spirit. But the New Testament and the Old Testament refer to God often, especially the New, as Father. But the designation of father is not a designation for masculinity versus femininity. It is a designation for personal connection and relationship. That is what is meant by father. So Jesus, he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, 
who art in heaven, holy is your name. And then we could go on and recite it. But he, tra- he teaches us to relate to him as Father. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3 in verse 1 says, How great is the Father's love for us that he has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. When we begin to think of who God is and what is he, he is spirit and he is Father. He relates to us in a personal way. But the thing that then begins to get slightly confusing is God is not just Father and He's not just Spirit, but there is what we call the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed for all eternity. There was never a time when one of them were created. But there was a time, and it happened in history, where the God, that God, who is Spirit, sent the second person of the Trinity to become body. And so Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God. Or we have in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And there came a time in history when God sent the second person of the Trinity to take on a human form so that we who are human could relate to God in a new and different way. And we could see the embodiment of who God is in human form. And this God, Jesus, took on human form and he lived among humanity 2,000 years ago for 33 years. And he had hundreds and thousands of people who saw him, who interacted with him, who were taught by him. And his closest disciples who all rejected him after his death and who all returned to him after his resurrection, after that point began to write letters about who he is and how we relate to him. And in those letters, and I'm making kind of a transitional point here, we learn two more things about who God is and we learn them from the Apostle John about what after the Apostle John, after he had interacted with Jesus personally, these were the best ways that the Apostle John could describe the personhood of who Jesus is, who is the image of the invisible God, and who Jesus said in John 14, 9, to see me is to see the Father. And so here's the first. Here's what John said. God is love. After all the time that John spent with Jesus in earth and after his resurrection, the most accurate language that he could use to define about who God was is that God is love. In 1 John 4, 8 and 9, the text reads, whoever does not love others, whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. That is his nature. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. To know God is is to love others, for God is, by his very nature, love. If whatever vision you have of God causes you to look less like Jesus and more like Ebenezer Scrooge, you have a wrong vision of who God is, for God is love. Second or fourth, we see And again, it comes from John. We see that John says that God is light. 
John says in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so for those of us who question, if there is a God, how could he do X, Y, or Z? I don't know. That I don't have the answer. But from the man who knew Jesus from spending three and a half years with him, from the man, John, who after Jesus' death and resurrection began to follow him closer and who was willing to give his life in torture, we are told according to tradition that this man who wrote this, 1 John 1, 5, at the end, near the end of his life was, put in, was going to be executed for his following Jesus by putting into a vat of burning oil. And we're told he was and he survived miraculously and then he was exiled onto an island called Patmos. That's what tradition tells us. It would have been easy for that man to believe that God should be doing things a little bit different, right? Man, having my wisdom teeth was hard. Out was hard. I didn't get put into a vat of burning oil and put into exile on an island. I would hate both of those things. I can't hunt. I got to talk. And if you talk, the deer run away, right? Exile is almost worse than the pot of burning oil. But I don't fish either, by the way. Same thing. But if I did fish, I would not throw them back. I would eat them. Okay, so the man who had all of this go down says, still, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We have all these visions of God, and we all have a vision of God, who we believe he is, or who we were taught he is and rejected and therefore replaced him with. But ask yourself, is the vision that I have of God, is it leading me to look more like the God that Jesus says the Father is and that he is, and that John the Apostle says that God is? Is it causing you to relate in true worship and spirit and truth? Is it causing you to have a close, intimate, personal relationship where we call him Father and look at him, look at ourselves as his children? Is it causing you to be more loving and to see the world the way God sees the world? If it isn't, then you need to change your vision of God. I promised you at the beginning of my sermon that I would tell you a little bit how I see God working in our world. It's an, it is great to have a great vision of who God is, and it all begins with this, but we also need to understand how does God work with us. And you need to know that God respects our boundaries. And what I mean by this is, even if you have this perfect vision of God, you can still mess it up. God respects our boundaries. He does not force us to see him the way he wants to be seen or the way he is. He doesn't force us to do anything. In fact, he respects our no. He allows us to be angry with him. He leaves work for us to do that if we don't do it, we suffer for it. God respects our boundaries, but he only asks one thing of us to do freely, and that is just to place our trust in him. If we were to relate truly to God, we would ask ourselves at all times one simple question. What would it look like if I placed radical faith in Jesus? What would I do if I were to put radical faith in Jesus and then act on the answer? 
God will never force you to ask and answer that question. But if you do not, you will experience the distance from a false vision and a false relationship with him. And if you do, and you orient your life around it, you will experience the love, the joy, the peace that God wants to flood into each one of your hearts. And this morning, this cold morning before Thanksgiving, there's nothing else I want for you than that. And let me pray for you to that end. Father, we ask that you would so fill our hearts with your love and that you would fill us with a true vision of who you are, that we might be transformed, that we might become men and women of love, joy, and peace, and that the reality that we are in around us in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes, would start to look more and more like the reality that you want this world to be like. Father, we know that that one day will descend onto earth as the Lord's Prayer teaches us, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but until that day, help us to experience the joy of bringing that reality to the here and now in a world that is conflicting and coexisting with dark and light. We pray that you might work through us to show the light. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.